Welcome to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Shalom. Hello. Nice to be with you to talk about these beautiful minor prophets yeah. with a major message, our wonderful Jonah and Micah. So we're starting with Jonah. Um, who's Jonah? Where? What time period do you live in? What, where's, you know, this is the northern tribes are only a little over 100 years old. It's during a very wicked time of Jeroboam II. It's right before the Assyrian conquest comes over and takes over the northern kingdoms. First of all, they just become a vassal state for 20 years before they're deported in, in 721. So the time period is roughly about 790 B.C. to 770 B.C. because we are told who the king is. So we get these general periods of time. But this is really uh, Jonah is a minor prophet with such a major impact because our savior uses the sign of Jonah as the sign of his resurrection. You know, mm. we have three gospels that quote our savior saying he will use the sign of Jonah. So he has a great impact for hundreds and hundreds of years beyond his life because of the way the Lord saved his life with a fish. Mm. <laughs> um, but if we want to look at that time period, it's second Kings chapter 14 and verse 25 also tells us that Jonah preached to these northern kingdoms of Israel and Samaria. Um, it's a similar time as, as Isaiah is preaching down in the south or Micah, um, maybe a little bit um, earlier than, than Micah, but just about this same time period. And his testimony, his story is written to witness of the resurrection, even though he's not resurrected. It's just that he came back to a, a chance to live again. Um but this whole concept of who are the Lord's enemies and who are our enemies is brought into question in this nice little short, short book. I think for me, one of my favorite themes of this book is the atonement and repentance. How yeah. about you? How about I think you? so, too. I mean, I mean the, the, what stood out to me in this most recent reading was that the Lord rewards good behavior regardless of race, which we talk about in the New Testament a little bit later, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yes, it doesn't matter if you're not from the chosen tribe, if you're going to listen and obey yeah. the laws of God that are eternal. The other thing I think is interesting that in the Judaic world right now, this book, Jonah, is read on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, mm. because of this hope of a second chance, a second life, and and the repentance and forgiveness of our God. So uh, that fall holiday where they celebrate the atoning sacrifice of their Messiah is the day that Jonah's read. I was interested to read that the whole book of Jonah is a little chiasmus. We start out with the Lord commanding Jonah to preach to Nineveh. Right. And then the second point, Jonah sins. He disobeys God. He doesn't want to serve. And next thing that happens is Jonah's repenting. And then we come out of the chiasmus and we see Nineveh mm. repenting. And then Jonah sins again by not wanting Nineveh to be saved. And the Lord says, should I not spare Nineveh? So it's this beautiful little four chapters that all fit into nice parallelisms. Also, chapter one is a beautiful chiasmus. And as we start up, let's talk geographically a little bit too. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Okay. So that's the major... You know, they, they claim that the founder was Nimrod, but it's the major commercial center for 200 years right now. It's up north in the Tigris-Euphrates rivers and northern and western Mesopotamian. And um, Sennacherib's attack is going to be discussed a little bit about this in Second Kings. But in the meantime, 
this is before that because the Lord is trying to get the Assyrians to repent um, or else they'll be destroyed. And we know the outcome. They do. Right. It's, it's a great, great story. Anything else before we jump into the text? I forgot to say where he's from. It's a tiny little town, Gath Heifer. We're told in the text that he's from Gath Heifer. Some scholars think that this is a small town just three miles northeast of Nazareth. Okay. And that um, others say, no, 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 he, he's down in the south, but he's asked to preach in the north. It's a little bit tricky because there's Gath as well. And so they don't know if the name was shortened or longer. So there's different places with similar names. So it's we don't know for sure where he's coming from. But we do know that the Lord commands him to rise and we know where he's going. He goes to Joppa. He goes to Tarshish. And we know those locations. Those are bigger cities and it's a little bit easier to find those. Chapter one begins with, I love verse two, arise. And I think that's such a wonderful first lesson. God (laughs) is caring about all the nations, even our enemies. So let's speak politely about everyone. As yeah, I, I like that too. Yeah, you asked. Yeah, you asked about you know kind of some other insights or thoughts that I had on this, and this is the one that stood out to me: is that the Lord will call. Sometimes I'm the one who's being called arise, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but also gives me a lot of comfort and faith that if I'm going astray, that the Lord will call people to you know, call me to repentance if I'm listening, right? Yeah, yeah. If we remain meek and humble, yeah, that there'll be those. And that's sort of the attitude to take as we approach a general conference or approach right. a state conference or even a sacrament meeting or preparing a lesson. You know, I feel like anytime, even approaching our scripture study, what can I learn? What do you need to teach me? How do I need to realign? That's great, yeah. John. I yeah. love that. Thank you. Verse three, do you want to start reading that one for us? Sure. But John rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down unto it, into it. So Joppa is the closest, or Joppa, however you want to pronounce it, is the closest port to Jerusalem. So it's just due west of the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a Philistinian port, but they've got these huge ships. Now, Tarshish in the New Testament is Spain. In the Old Testament, some people think that it referred to Tarsus, which is where Paul of Tarsus is coming from. It's one of a very, very large city up in modern-day Turkey. But wherever it is, the name Tarsus became also synonymous for large ships because it was a long distance, and so you needed a big boat to get there. And so a Tarsus is a large ship as well as a city, and it may... Um, be one of those two places or maybe even something else. It really doesn't matter. The point is he's trying to go as far away as he can, which I think is his spiritual death. He's trying to leave the presence of the Lord. God is calling him. He heard God's voice and he's going the opposite direction. You know, Nineveh is east and he is heading west. (laughs) You know, know, it it gives me a little insight to kind of the nature of the calling, because if it was just, you know, in his own head, he could have just stayed where he was. It's not a big deal. It's, you know, move on with my life. But this was this had to be something compelling where he was going to a foreign land, paying money. Yeah. And I hope not too many of us have strong enemies, but... You know, I like to think of this in a time of warfare. Think of it during the Second World War, who your enemies were, or even Russian-Ukrainian, a little closer to our day and age, or whatever other embattlements are at the time. Um, think of being called to go preach to the enemy I, and, and yeah. put that in perspective in our grandparents' generation of World Wars or Korean War or something. You know. Yeah. And there's a lot of parallels to the Book of Mormon, which we'll get too deeper as we get into the text, but the... Um... 
the idea of being called to the enemy is is a common one. It goes yeah. both ways in yes. the in the uh, in the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon, too. Yes. Well, verse four, they've got this stormy sea. The ship is going to be broken. The sailors were all praying, which I thought was very inspiring that we have yeah. a prayerful sailors. I thought that's terrific news. Um, pray to your gods. And I don't know how Jonah could stay asleep um, during a, <laughs> these, these boats aren't very big. You know, the, the ancient boats were pretty small. And even if it is a, a Tarshish, even if it is a large ship, they're still not very small. And during a storm, how could you not get seasick? How could you stay asleep? I think it might be symbolic here too. Yeah. You know, he's down in the depths. He's in the sides of the ship or another translation, the depths of spiritual hell, this place that is as far removed from God as you can be. And I see the shipmaster here as he comes to Jonah as a type of Christ. What meanest thou, sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. Chapter 1, verse 6. Mm-hmm. This shipmaster taking on the role of our Lord and saying, wake up and get back to work. And may we all be called to repentance so clearly. I think what a blessing to have that. And do you see in verse 7 this idea of casting lots? I, I remember yeah. um, being taught that this was like sheep snuckles or something that they use like dice. But when I went to grad school, they said, that's not it at all. Everyone had a little stick that they carved and you put these little sticks in a dish and shake it. And the one that flies out is the one that the Lord's hand has taken out. Mm. Um, but whatever it is, sheep snuckles or little carved sticks, the lot fell on Jonah. And they believe that God's hand was in it. And Jonah acknowledged the fact. You know, I think this is interesting in verse 8 that these sailors are asking Jonah these five questions. They're very interested in Jonah's relationship with God. Right. And, you know, Jonah confesses, I'm a Hebrew. This is verse 9. I fear the Lord. And what a great missionary opportunity. I just see that they're asking him to tell us about this creator God and he has this opportunity to start preaching the gospel right there on the boat to these sailors, and he does it. But he also says, I'm the problem. I am, I do worship God, and you'll know that he is God when you throw me overboard and, and, the, sea, and the seas are calmed. You know, you're going to see that I'm okay. So these poor sailors are so afraid of Jonah. Um, when they hear that he's fled from Nineveh, that they do. They throw him overboard, verses 11 and 12. And... Um, that's right where the chiasma starts again, um, as Jonah is swallowed up in this it's large odd. fish. It's odd. And 12, verse 12, it, it's his idea, right? Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. Yes. So this is what we call him. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's they're a little reticent about, about doing it. But um, I mentioned earlier that chapter one is this, is this beautiful chiasmus, and the center point is this casting, when, when Jonah says in verse nine, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the Lord of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. You know, that's when his missionary work is going. He's testifying. That's the most important part of this chapter. And then as it comes out, you know, the tempest is able to be calmed. And in the end, we have this great sea animal, this great fish in verse 17 that swallows him up. And, you know, you read National Geographic's about people that this has actually happened to or animals or whatever that have been consumed by larger animals that are able to stay alive for a short period of time. And I look at it spiritually as we look at our 
Book of Mormon types, um, Alma. He's in the depths of hell for three days, and we see Jonah in the depths, uh, on the verge of death for three days as he's there. I can only imagine the pH of that acidic environment and his hydrochloric acid or whatever is involved. As a nurse, I always think about those kind of things. (laughs) But um, Alma 36 really does a beautiful job describing that. And, of course, we know Matthew um, 16 describes it again as well. As we're looking for types of Christ, I think chapter 1, verse 17 um, is the sign that our Savior uses so often. Yeah. Three days and three nights. It's not a day and a half. It's not two days and one night or whatever we want to use. Uh, He says, the Savior says, I will give you the sign of Jonas. Three days and three nights. And that's in Matthew 12, 39 to 41. And Mark 16 and actually Matthew 16 and 4, Luke 11, 29 and 32. So that is powerful to hear those three different witnesses in the two Gospels. I said it was three. It's just two Gospels. So we see in verse one, Jonah begins to pray again. And I think it's so good that the Lord gives us challenges so we can bring us to our knees because that's where he wants us. The challenge is tailor-made to get us more humble. And he becomes meek. Do you want to read chapter two, verse one? Yeah. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God, out of the fish's belly. It sort of sounds as if um, Jonah in verse two then is having some sort of a a temple covenant because he talks about he's looking to the Lord's house. You know, he's he's praying as if he were um, going to worship with the Lord or focusing on the house of God in heaven. As we know, our earthly temple is just a pattern after the temple in heaven where our God dwells. And then verses three to 10 are this beautiful psalm. It's Jonah's psalm. And it's really filled with a lot of symbolism and imagery. And every word is so carefully chosen. It's interesting that he talks about the, in verse five, um, do you you want to read that verse five there? Verse five, chapter two, the waters compassed me about even to the soul, the depths closed me round about the weeds were wrapped about my head. I like to think of him only writing the things that are important because it's this beautiful little chiasmus because it's all poetry. So. He's talking about his soul. He's talking about the weeds are around his head. He doesn't talk about gasping air and like that. It's the weeds around his head. I think that's spiritual, his his direction, his senses are failing him. But it's also interesting he uses the word soul here in the King James, at least. Mm-hmm. So we have things that are wrong with our spiritual weeds, things that are growing out of place. They are not wanted there. And they are affecting his his senses not only are being failed, but spiritually they have been changed. You know, he's he's in needs of some major changes. And that's when he calls on the Lord. And then the Lord's going to answer him out of this depths, which is just beautiful. And I, I think about the parallel you made earlier with, with Alma and his time. I mean, he was struck down by an angel and it had some harrowing moments, but, you know, and he was passed out. Mm-hmm. But I see some parallels in the processes and how they describe it. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah, it was so horrific that nothing was worse than his pains and horror. And then, of course, Alma describes nothing was better than the joy that he receives. Yeah. And I think um, we see a dramatic change in our wonderful prophet as well. 
Why don't we read verse 7 too? This is powerful. Jonah 2 verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. And he repents, and um, he promises the Lord that he will... Um, obey him in verse nine. We, salvation is of the Lord, and that's all capitalized. So that's Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in verse ten, the Lord speaks to the fish, and he vomited him out. Mm. So this wonderful children's story that we all know so well continues on with some fabulous parts that are a little bit harder to understand. We have to go beyond the the storytelling to understand what happens next. So he has a long walk to Nineveh, but of course the fish takes him right to the Mediterranean, back to where he's supposed to be. So he hoofs it over um, east to Nineveh. And then Nineveh is such a large city, and I've heard lots of different estimates. Some say 120,000 people were living there at the time. But he describes it as a, the city was large enough that it took three days to go from the population to the population, you know, from the mm. desert to the other side. And I think of um, how our cities just expand. You know, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area and we Silicon Valley just continues to expand and expand. And it would be a three days journey to walk right. up uh, from coast from the around San Francisco greater area now. So Nineveh is this uh, great city and he prophesies and calls them to repentance Um Look at verse 8, turn from your violence, and um, every person there, including the king, believe and repent. In fact, in, in verses 5 to 7, he says, they put on sackcloth, and have, mm. they even had their animals fast. I have never heard about animals fasting before, but this is how sincere yeah. uh, they were, and it shows me that this is why the Lord needed Jonah to be this prophet, because he was so powerful in what he was saying. And it's really helpful to read our Joseph Smith translation as we continue here, um, because verse 9 of chapter 3 in the Joseph Smith translation says, Who can tell if we will repent and turn unto our God? It says, God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way and repented. So it is the people who are repenting. Mm -hmm. It is the people who are turning and not the other way around. And then in verse 10, our footnotes also down including this Joseph Smith translation here, God turned away the evil that he had said that he would bring upon them. So they they met the qualification. Now I, I go back often to section 130, where the Lord says, there's a law irrevocably decreed before the foundations of this earth upon which all blessings are predicated. And if we can just learn the law and live it, there will be eternal ramifications. And so his preaching was not the end point. His preaching was to bring them to repentance, which was the end point. And that's the part I think he missed. Um, Because I think he's still, I don't know if he's prejudiced or what, but chapter four tells us about his his learning lesson now. So the Ninevites have repented, but poor Jonah, I don't think he understood the purpose of his mission because he did not see um, what happened as being appropriate. I don't know if it was his pride because he said you're going to be killed and they weren't, or if he just had a blind spot because they were the enemy. Yeah. And um, but poor Jonah, um, he starts citing Exodus chapter 34 verse six, in Jonah chapter four verse two. Thou art gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and great to kindness, and repentest of this evil. 
And then in the Joe Smith footnote, you'll notice, without the repentance of this people. Mm-hmm. So he says, just take my life. Do you remember any other prophets saying that? Elijah. Yeah, that's what yeah. I was thinking too. You know, okay, this, they, I'm, I, I, I don't understand what's happening. I just want to get to heaven, you know. And um, the Lord's answer is really beautiful. Chapter four, verse, um, verse four. Do you want to start there? Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? Yeah, so he's saying, okay, why are you mad? Is this really helpful? Is it, is it, why, why? We've just had the most miraculous missionary experience in the history of Israel, and you're mad? Yeah, <laughs> it works. That's the, that is yeah. the crazy thing is it works, yeah. right? I mean, they, they actually repent and yeah. listen to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you remember back, if you remember back in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? You know, yeah. I mean, the Lord's already taught the prophets. I, I'm not trying to kill people off. That is not what I, I'm trying. I love the image of God as a gardener. I'm trying to help you grow. Alma yeah. uses it a lot. The seed imagery for our faith. I, I'd been thinking of this in, in preparation and, and I had two thoughts. One was maybe Jonah is just so used to the scriptures and how Israel treated uh-huh. calls to repentance that it just never happened and then destruction came, right? Yeah. Um, and then the other one is all the things you were just saying is like, you know, in the Book of Mormon, when you're called to, you know, to Lamanites, these are the people that hunted and killed you and, you know, oppress you and so on. It's hard to give up sometimes. Yeah. But the sons of Mosiah did it yeah, in the Book of Mormon. They did it. But here... Oh, um, even Enos. There's echoes of Enos where he goes through his process and his heart softened in a very short chapter, but he's, it's, there's a process to it. Like Jonah's kind of on step two of a four-step yep, program. Yep, yep. Yeah. And we aren't stepping in his shoes. I don't mean to be throwing rocks at this good prophet. I'm sorry yeah. if I made him sound like the bad guy. But he goes outside of the city to watch what's going to happen. And he's thinking, of course, it, um, it's going to be destroyed. But he creates this little booth here. And I have to immediately think of the Feast of the Tabernacles where yeah. they're supposed to go into the wilderness, live back in a tent for a period of time out in the wilderness so that you can remember your captivity of your fathers and the walking through that desolation for 40 years. But um, the, the Lord has this kikone tree or a castor beam. And supposedly they do grow in this area and they can grow very fast. And as he goes to watch this plant, actually in verse seven, it's described that a specific type of worm. And I looked this up and it, this worm is used for a scarlet dye. Mm-hmm. That was very interesting to me because we often, at this time of Micah and Jonah and Isaiah, we think of scarlet as though our sins be of scarlet. Right. So it's interesting that this specific worm that eats away at this um, gourd or this plant that is now providing shade for him and, you know, he's hot, he's mad, and um, the combination is not good. And in verse 9 and 10, um, he wants to give his life up again and asks God for, um, you know, can't you help me? And I just love the fact that the Lord says in verse 11, should I not spare the people and these animals, you know, you had sympathy on this gourd for dying. Um, and it died from this sin of this worm, uh, which is interesting, serpent, worm, sin, red. I right. just think there's lots of ties here to the satanic influences in our lives. Um, you're mad about a little tree. Can't you be mad? Can't you also have empathy for people? Can you see that 
I created both. I'm in charge of both. Mm. Really a beautiful ending of um, this prophecy that our Savior will protect us. I love the image of a plant because it then requires that living water to keep its nutrients going. And the Lord's using this imagery, I think, to say, you know what? The Assyrians' repentance is going to be short-term. And just like this worm took this plant down, their repentance is not going to last long. And I will punish them in their own season, in their own due time. But I don't want to kill them now. I'm going to allow the wicked to destroy the wicked. And in a few decades, that's what happens. Yeah. The Syrians take down or take captive the northern tribes. Anything else about this wonderful prophecy of Jonah? Well, just, Jonah? Yeah. <clears throat> in um, taken as a whole, I just had more insight into how the Lord calls us prophets in context of every other one. Remember, I have everything from Samuel to Jacob. Very all different of these, calls. All, just the way they do it. It's like, I, and it, it helps me understand not just recognize prophets from where they come from but also how the Lord perhaps maybe speaks to me at different times in my life. I think so, because, you know, if we're going to use John the Revelator's definition of a prophet, it's one who has had a witness of of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the anointed one. And then we testify of that. That is the spirit of prophecy. And I see these minor prophets as wonderful people who receive a witness of the Lord and are called to serve. And that is describing all of us who are seeking to hear the word of the Lord. And he he is calling us each in our own sphere of influence to be a prophet, to raise that voice. The book of Jeremiah says a prophet is a little bit different. The book of Jeremiah says a prophet is one who's come into the counsels of God and has seen and heard and then has the responsibility of sharing what he saw and heard. But um, either definition, I feel like we can enter into the counsel of, of God, not only in our own private lives, but as we join in the scriptures and see the counsels of God with other great and noble um, men and women of the past. It's very motivating. Yeah, me too. You don't have to be perfect. The Lord will help you overcome your weaknesses in his way, in ways that you exactly need, right? And in Jonah's case, it was quite miraculous. Yeah, right? it's it's such but a great story to apply to our own lives. He'll call you and prepare you and And the fact and that his mission was used to testify of how many days and nights our Savior would be. In yeah. the, and of course, we know during the time that he was in the to- his body lay in the tomb, he was reorganizing the missionary work, you know, yeah. and that's just such a beautiful image of being, Jonah calls it the depths of hell in Mm -hmm. some translations. And that's where Christ was, was the depths of the spirit world preparing missionary work. Yeah. Should we move on to Micah? Let's look at Micah. So Micah's got six chapters and Micah's name means who is like God. It's actually a shortened name of Michael. Okay. The great angel, uh, the archangel. We learn that Micah is not from a wealthy background. He's from this small little town And he has no aristocratic leanings. And so as he looks at Jerusalem and the northern, wherever he's prophesying, he sees a lot of social injustice with the wealthy. You know, that's not part of his sphere. And I think we're told that he's living. We are told that he is serving during the time of King Jotham to King Hezekiah. So that's 740 to 687. So again, we're paralleling with Isaiah and Jonah and Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah. This is that same, same time period. Many people think Micah was a young disciple of Isaiah. 
and okay. one of the many that were influenced by him. And then the Lord called him on a different mission. Mm. And Micah was asked to preach during this terribly turbulent time when up in the northern tribes, King Jeroboam II is. And this northern kingdom, you know, they've just been occupied by this worthless group of kings. You know, they all pretend to have some allegiance to God, but they sure are fooling no one because they're completely ineffective in countering um, the Assyrians and they don't end up on their knees. And at this time in, in 745, this is when Tilgath-Pileser is up in Assyria and he is a powerful general. So I think what's happened is Jonah has been preaching about the same time up in Nineveh for them to repent, and Micah is then called up to try to get the Israelites in the northern kingdom to repent. Mm. But Jonah had more success um, up there, and unfortunately, the northern kingdoms will be taken in in less than you know, 20 years, you know. But they're already going to become a vassal state right away. Under King Jeroboam II, right after that, they become a vassal state. And they've got heavy taxes ever since Sennacherib comes in. They, they're paying terrible taxes. Sennacherib is the general up in this area. Right, right. Okay, anything else? I guess the organization is important. We've got uh, these six chapters are divided into three portions. The first one is talks about God's judgment and then hope for the future and then condemnation. Mm. And I guess with that, should we dive in? Have you got anything else? Not, not on that level. More on the text, though. Yeah, good. And I hope we can find uh, prophecies of Christ here. Uh, there's one that is quoted in the New Testament right. that I am thrilled to find. And there's others that might tie in that you can find, too. So chapter 1, verse 2 through 9, talks about um, Samaria's fate. And they're stripped naked. You know, this idea of removing your garment as a sign of mourning or howling or wailing. This is these first three chapters on God's judgment, where the the neighboring cities are listed there. Lachish is where they've got really fast horses, and these enemies are all explained as approaching the daughter of Zion. And that would refer, I think, that the fact that the southern tribes are just following the bad example of the northern tribes. Right. Because the daughter of Zion usually refers to Jerusalem area. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm afraid he he's talking to both of them and that they both are better start repenting or else going through mourning because they've lost the opportunity to hear the word of God. And he, he uses this imagery. Do you see verse 16 there where they're bald, they've shaved their heads? This is also what they did with mourning. Remember, they would scream, they would yell. By the time of the New Testament, I've read texts that say every man has to hire two or three professional mourners to shriek at the death of his wife. And then you're supposed to scream and cry for two or three days to show your sorrow. And I have to think at a time when the Spirit of the Lord should be felt, the devil has encouraged this cultural practice to completely deafen anyone's ears to the Spirit of the Lord at this time when the veil is thin. But that is what Micah is describing in this first chapter. And then in chapter two, he dives into the social evils. You know, I want you to be punished because you've exploited the poor. And, you know, initially, I think every Israel family had their own land. Remember that back in Leviticus when Moses divides up the land? And then when Joshua comes, every family is to get their own land. And I don't know if you remember, but even some of the women 
didn't have any sons, or, and they said, hey, can't our daughter still get the land? And Joshua said, yes, let's make sure everybody has their own land. But they become so corrupt that um, they no longer have that um, option, and they're stealing the land. They're Micah describes, you know, they're waiting on their beds, coming, they're laying in bed thinking about it's premeditated robbery yeah. and stealing and, and all these sins are all premeditated, trying to take the land. And who's left? It's the women and children. It's the homeless. It's those that um, are the poor. And he's just really attacking the social injustices of the people. But that's not all. Look at chapter three. He also attacks their leaders are corrupt. And, you know, he lamb blasts not just their political and legal leaders, but he also lamb blasts their religious leaders. And mm. I see this as so applicable to our day and age. Do you see where he says in um, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, you hate good and love evil. Isn't that tragic? That is. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing as I kind of go through these chapters, mm -hmm. you know, line by line, I see that social narrative that shows up oh, yeah. modernly, but as mm -hmm. well as in the Book of Mormon yeah. and, of course, here in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. And chapter 2 says, um, you know, I'm planning a disaster. This is verse 3. Yeah. It's going to be a disaster against this people because you have not obeyed. And I think it's interesting because the Lord is saying, I am God of the land as well as God of the people. And you think you can just rob and steal and plunder and not take care of your land? I want you to realize that the land is important to me. The earth is my creation, and I expect you to be stewards of it. I feel the same way about our, our land now. You mm -hmm. know, we have got to take care of our planet. This is a beautiful message that Micah is giving here in, in these early verses of chapter 3, or chapter 2, excuse me. Because he says, do you want to read chapter 2, verse 3? And It's 200 years after the northern kingdom has become its own country. And he's saying, you're going to be wasted. Chapter 2, verse 3. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks. Neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. So get rid of your pride. Get rid of your haughtiness. Stop thinking you know everything. And you're going to be, he continues on in verse four, you're going to be utterly ruined. Yeah. And it's a warning that unless they repent, they are going to have their fields given to the traitors, it says, in the NIV translation, at least. They don't listen. They don't change. It's almost um, as if they just had a veneer of religious respectability. You know, just this outside appearance. I'm going to go through the motions. I'm going to say I'm a, I've been called of God. But their inside is not changing. It's just this outside veneer of religious respectability. So in verse 7 and 8, Then shall the seers be ashamed and the diviners confounded. He's talking about the false prophets, these people who have said, Oh, no, 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 don't, don't believe that God is going to punish us. And he says, They're going to cover their lips. They're going to know that I am God. Because he continues on, I am full of power. This is, this is um, Micah saying, I have the spirit of the Lord and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgressions. You know, he's just an on-fire missionary. And um, this, this feels like a Benedi to me. Ah, right? Benedi. Yeah. Yeah. Verses eight, chapter two, verse eight. But truly I am full of power by the spirit of the Lord and judgment and of might. 
to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, as he outlines the corruption in chapter three, it's not until um, chapter four that the Lord gives this hope. But unfortunately, they never do repent. Mm. And so this hope is very far away. But why don't we look at chapter four, verse two? Do you want to read that one? Micah four, verse two. And many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of God, of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You know, that becomes a favorite verse, not only in the Old Testament, but a favorite verse in the restoration. Yeah. You know, the Lord cites this promise again to us through Joseph Smith. And also the Lord cited it himself um, in third Nephi. He cites chapter 12 through thir- or chapter four verses 12 through 13. Um, and, and, but there is going to be this return from exile. I love the image of the temple here. Mm. Come, let us go up to the house of the Lord in this mountain. So there is this hope for the future that it's going to get better. When our Savior cites, um, verses 12 to 13, it's, it's quite consistent. Do you want to read chapter four, verse 12 and 13? Yeah, Micah 4, 12, 13. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. So that's the remnant that will be saved. Mm. And this remnant is going to come through and they're going to, I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord. So the holiness consecrate, um, sanctify, sanctus is the same word for holy in English. The, The beautiful idea here is the Lord will make us holy and then the holiness of his people will add to his holiness. Mm. And it's really a lovely um, prophecy there. And he continues on with this great hope for the future in chapter five. The nation's future characteristics are going to be this saved remnant. It says here in um, verse eight, the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles as a lion and both treadeth down and teareth up and pieces and none shall deliver. But we need to go back and read chapter five, verse two. This is the prophecy of our Savior. I think you'll recognize it from the wise men. Go ahead. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose whose goings forth have been told from old, from everlasting. So this verse was so well known that even Herod's henchmen, the chief priest that he had placed there, they were not necessarily the most righteous priests. They were the ones that were willing to work with wicked King Herod. His, he's, they say, oh, we know where, where the Messiah is going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. It says in Micah chapter two, verse five. And then later on during Christ's ministry, they say he can't be the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. We all know he's supposed to be in Bethlehem. So it seems like this was a very well-known prophecy. People with a lot of knowledge, people with very little knowledge knew that our Savior was going to be born in Bethlehem. And um, Micah is the voice that gets to share that happy, happy news. Which is such a small place. I mean, I mean, the, the modern thinking or the, the... the 200 to 400 people, small little yeah. shepherd village, you know, six miles 
southeast of Jerusalem. Although they did raise some of the sheep there were used in the temple. Mm. So they think that there was a special place for the priests to be there and guard those sheep. Anyway, really a happy understanding that Bethlehem, house of bread, right. or an Arabic house of food, house of meat, but house of bread is the place where the bread of life will be born. Yeah. And then continuing on down to the condemnation, mm-hmm. he leaves these happy two chapters on the hope for future, chapter four and five, and turns now to the condemnation and their consolation in chapter six and seven. And he, he, he sets up this case against Israel. Look at those first five verses, chapter six, one through five. He develops this case against Israel and then he turns it and says, this is the essence of true religion. Do you want to read chapter 6, verse 8? It's just beautiful. Yeah, Micah 6, 8. He has shewed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Yeah. And then after that, the next seven verses are all these wages of sin. Mm-hmm. But if we can walk mercifully and Follow this beautiful formula for spiritual success. It, it really, to me, is the essence of true religion. Yeah. It's beautiful. But he ends with God being willing to pardon our iniquities. In chapter 7, we read, this is verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgressions of the remnant and retaineth not his anger because he delighteth in mercy? Mm. God wants to be merciful. He wants to bless us, but it is we who choose to turn to him, we who choose to listen and bend our knees and bow before him. That is the great book of Micah. Yeah. I've I've loved listening to these smaller prophets because they're, it feels like to me, much more like ordinary people. They're not these mm-hmm. Isaiahs, you know, which are just seem almost unapproachable to some. Mm-hmm. This is a um, wonderful are... person who is serving a great mission or else a wonderful person who has his heart burning within, who needs to yeah. fulfill the responsibilities of a prophet. Yeah. And the Lord uh, supports both, you know, or miraculously as it would with us. We're so blessed to have these scriptures. I'm so grateful we still have the minor prophets at yeah. our fingertips. May you enjoy reading them as much as we have in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.